The reading is from Luke chapter 23, starting at the 32nd verse. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. And uh, before we proclaim the Nicene Creed, um, we have a wonderful privilege of welcoming uh, John and Judith Mason with us today. And John's going to be preaching Uh, for us this morning. Many of you will know John and Judith. Those of you who don't, make sure you get to know them before uh, the day is out. Uh, John and Judith founded Christ Church, which is our mother church, and they were instrumental in launching Emmanuel. So when they're in town, it's like family. And so John will bring the word to us in just a moment. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much indeed for your invitation and also the welcome Uh, Jim, you might like to keep the reading from Luke chapter 9, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 23 on page 9 open before you. Royal events attract our attention. In April 2011, some 23 million Americans watched the wedding of Prince William and Catherine Middleton. Last year, over 29 million Americans watched the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Royal events, their rich pageantry, ceremony, and joy capture our attention. How different was another royal occasion that occurred in the first Palm Sunday the day that Jesus was acclaimed king as he entered Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, as we call it, formed the beginning of a week of extreme contrasts. First, a king's welcome. Second, 
a king's death. So first a king's welcome. The Gospels tell us that Jesus deliberately set the scene for his entry into Jerusalem. He was to ride into the city on the back of a foal of a donkey. It was in fulfilment of a prophecy made by Zechariah some four, five hundred years before. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 we read that Zechariah had spoken of God's king riding into the city on the foal of a donkey. As Jesus prepared to ride that donkey that day, the disciples threw their cloaks on the back of that donkey. And Luke records, as Jesus rode down from the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and then up into the city of Jerusalem, the people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Jesus' entry that day had all the signs of a king entering his city. Indeed, Luke, with the other gospel writers, wants us to feel just how much of a royal procession it was. For we read, as Luke records, as Jesus was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Their words were from one of the festal psalms sung typically on the way to the feast of the Passover. It's a song of victory, a hymn of praise to the one God who never loses his battles and establishes his kingdom. And there's another theme that pops up. Peace. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven they sang. Peace, you may recall, was the angel's song at the announcement of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth, the angels had sung. However, there's an irony here that the crowds in their enthusiasm seem to have missed. This king was not riding a war horse. There's no royal or presidential motorcade with an armed security. And there's something else on that first Palm Sunday that Luke records. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. In day, indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up, set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. As Jesus came over the top of the Mount of Olives and saw the city that day, it's clear that uppermost in his thoughts were his suffering and the destruction of the nation's capital, 
David's royal city. Yes, he was the king, coming in the name of the Lord, as the people sang. But he knew he was not coming to take up David's throne, as everyone had expected at that time. Rather, he foresaw the city of Jerusalem, as it would be in 70 AD, a smoking, desolate ruin. Why would it happen? Because Jerusalem failed to recognize the one who had visited it. Yes, on that first Palm Sunday, there was joy, acclamation, but there are also tears, the tears of Jesus. Five days later, the unthinkable occurred. Jesus was crucified. The contrast could not have been more stark. One day, the crowds were saying he was God's promised king, yet within a week, the dying Jesus was exposed to the vulgar frivolity of the Roman soldiers as they offered him wine and made a party of it. If you're the king of the Jews, they mocked, save yourself. The events of Thursday evening and Friday that week had moved swiftly. Jesus had been betrayed, arrested, and brought to trial before the Jewish religious leaders. Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate again. Herod and Pilate had both declared Jesus innocent of the charges against him. But the Jewish, Jewish leaders were insistent that Jesus should be put to death. They had even brought in the equivalent of a renter crowd to force Pilate's decision. As I look carefully at Luke's gospel, it's quite evident that this was not the crowd that had welcomed Jesus on that Sunday before. And yet prophetically, Pilate, the Roman governor in Judea, who signed the crucifixion warrant, had ordered that the charge against Jesus was to be nailed above his head, King of the Jews. So turn with me now to the second theme that I've paired this morning, the scene of Jesus' cross, where it reveals for us the true nature, the true reason of his coming. And let me identify very briefly three themes, a prayer, a promise, and a shout. If you've got that text open in front of you, at verse 33 we read, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Who was Jesus praying for as he hung on the cross? Well, everyone watching the scene that day knew he was innocent. He was praying that God would forgive ignorance, ignorance of the truth. He was praying for people who shut their minds to the voice of truth, the voice of the Spirit, and the testimony of their conscience. Yes, he was praying for the Roman soldiers, he was praying for the Jewish leaders. He was also praying for the crowd and his followers. 
But let me suggest he was also praying then for you and me now. If we're honest, we know that we are guilty at one time or another of mocking or denying Jesus Christ. And isn't it true that although we've heard the story of the cross and we may have received Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we've too often refused to let it change us. And too often we've been silent when we know deep down we ought to have spoken up. We refuse to believe that it's been our indifference, our arrogance, or our anger, or our silence towards him that all contributed to his pain. So Luke tells us here that Jesus prayed for us then and continued, and he continues to this day to pray for us. He was also praying for the willful ignorance of cities throughout time. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then there's a promise. Just glance at verse 39. One of the criminals who hanged there railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, most people I know find funerals disturbing. They make us all too aware of our own mortality. Now, I don't want to be morbid this morning, but the reality is that all of us one day will die. These verses here both challenge and encourage us, for they show us that there are two ways to die. It's possible to die without Jesus. And that's the way the first criminal chose to go. He was resentful and scornful of what was happening to him. He was a man who chose to die as he had lived, totally rejecting and disdainful of anything religious. Let me tell you, it's tragic to witness that kind of death. It's without peace, because it's without hope. To die like this is to enter an eternal black hole, an eternal black hole in the universe where there is no love, no fun, no truth, no beauty. And yet every day, men and women choose to die that way. No matter the choral music, the flowers, the testimonies at such funerals. Let me tell you, as a minister has conducted many of them, they are dark and sad occasions. But there's a second way to die, with Jesus. And this is the way the second criminal chose. Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man's life had not been any better than his colleagues. He was no saint. 
He wasn't religious. He didn't pretend to be good. We are justly deserving death, he had said. Goodness knows how long it had been since he was last in church. But he does seem to have been genuine when he said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He saw Jesus was innocent. This man has done nothing wrong, he said. And whatever kind of evil he may have perpetrated in his life, he feared God enough to recognise his need. He also recognised the true kingly status of Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Notice he doesn't adopt religious or pretentious language. His words are simple, straightforward and sincere. In some vague way, he really understood that Jesus is God's king. And so what did he do? He asked for a place in the kingdom. Now his repentance, notice, may have come at five minutes to midnight, the midnight of his life. But notice Jesus' response. I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. There'll be no hell, no purgatory for you. Today you'll be with me. Well, dare I ask which side of the cross you plan to be on the last moments of your life? Among the contemptuous, who don't want to admit that they have been fools and therefore they die without Christ? Or among the believing with him? For anyone who puts their life in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, his promise rings true. Today you will be with me. And there was a shout that day just glance down at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Something ominous, even supernatural, about the last hour of Jesus' life. The mocking crowds had grown silent. Quietly they dispersed, no longer haughty but they went away, beating their breasts. There was darkness that had begun at noon and lasted till three o'clock in the afternoon, the hour that Jesus died. The sun did not shine for three solid hours. It couldn't have been an eclipse because as every amateur astronomer knows, there is a full moon at Passover time. The darkness was supernatural. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. What an incredible symbol. That heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from God's people was now torn from top to bottom, indicating that the way is now open into the very presence of God.
through God's perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 46 we read, Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. One thing a crucified man about just about to die could not do was shout. Crucifixion causes asphyxiation. The lungs are compressed and you can't breathe. To be able to summon up the strength to call out with a loud voice strongly suggests that Jesus was not physically about to die at all. And yet he did. And his words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, underline the point. The words of the Roman centurion, the officer in charge of the crucifixion are significant. Truly this man was a righteous man. That centurion would have seen men die and heard their cries. But this time he'd felt the darkness. And this time he heard a very different shout. It was a shout of victory. How true his words were. Jesus is the most righteous the most godly man who has ever walked this earth. Why then did he die? Well, the whole of the New Testament, the very voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts today, I suggest, tells us why. He died for us, for you, for me. The punishment of our sin was laid on him. And that's why there was hope for that dying criminal that afternoon. And that's why there's hope for you and me, for our families, and even for this city. Jesus' last words are so important. He prayed, Father, forgive them. He made a promise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And he used his last breath to shout words of victory as he surrendered his body as a sacrifice to God in our place so that when it comes our turn to die we might be able to say with the same confidence Father Father Friends, it's so important that we think about these themes of Palm Sunday and Good Friday that I've paired this morning. And as we consider their significance, the royal welcome that attended God's king and the death of God's king on our behalf, we need to ensure that our own relationship with this king is secure. So my question is, is it? And then when the joy of what we finally believe really touches us within, we'll want to share that news with our family and friends, work colleagues, and those around us in the city. And yet, too often, 
we are silent. Royal weddings attract our attention. The royalty of Jesus Christ and his coming will be far greater than anything that we can begin to imagine. Do you want to be part of that pageantry? The joy, the glory of that day? Do you want your family and friends? So many countless numbers of this city to be there to enjoy true royalty. Not just on one day, but forever. So often our voices have been stilled by the pressures of those around us. We've grown silent. We've become afraid to speak up. Let me conclude with some words about a city. Words from a poem by Lon Woodrum. Cities are more than steel and so stone of humming wheels and towers alone or busy, busy shops and boulevards or parks or home or well-kept yards. Cities are more than towering stores with neon signs and countless doors. Cities have eyes awash with tears and hearts that flee the mocking years. Cities are full of children crying and everywhere are people dying. Cities are more than stone steel towers proudly proclaiming this technology of ours. Cities are people for whom Jesus cried. Cities are souls for whom he died. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.